That's What She Said is presented by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Keyshawn, J. Will, and Max on ESPN Radio Monday through Friday from 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern brings you the insights from former number one pick in the NFL draft, Keyshawn Johnson, along with number two pick in the NBA draft, Jay Williams, and host Max Kellerman on the latest news from the NFL and college football. That's Keyshawn, J. Will, and Max on ESPN Radio and ESPN News, or listen to the podcast of the show. The Peabody and Emmy Award-winning 30 for 30 film series presents Once Upon a Time in Queens, a four-part documentary event about the city, the swagger, and the wild ride of the 1986 Mets. All four parts of Once Upon a Time in Queens are available to stream on ESPN Plus and the ESPN app immediately. At Academy Sports and Outdoors, they want you to have fun out there. So whether you're planning a fishing trip, heading out for a run, prepping your lease, or playing sports in the backyard. They'll have all the gear you need to enjoy more sports and outdoors, all at prices you'll love, and with easy curbside pickup available in just two hours. It's never been easier to shop all of their brands at academy.com, because whatever you love doing, they're here to help you do more of it. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about... Well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. My name is Cheryl Swoops, and my dilemma is I just got two new puppies, a boy and a girl, and I don't know if I can keep both of them or if I should keep both of them. Okay, so this is a tough one. I am speaking from the perspective of someone who has three dogs of my own and currently has a fourth in the house. Uh, Not really by choice, kind of happened upon us, but uh, we are loving him even though he is a very unruly and untrained puppy. Uh, So from my perspective, the more dogs, the better is what I'm saying. But I understand you've got a farm and a cat and all these other things going on. So number one, what I would say to really get a feel for whether they can coexist together, whether the girl and the boy puppy will get along and you'll have the ability to, to raise them seamlessly is start by vetting them. Right. Make sure they're healthy, fixed. If they're an age that's appropriate, get them fixed. That will certainly help with the behaviors and, and their interactions. And then training. It's tough, it's tiresome, it requires a lot of patience I don't have, but all of the problems that might come up can be fixed by making sure that the puppies, the cat, everyone in the house knows who's in charge. So I say keep both of them. Come on, I think you need both of them. You just need to get them trained a little bit so you can control some of the behavior. But Cheryl, I mean, what do you got acres and acres of land for if not to have a plethora of animals? And those puppies included. That's what she said. This week is an extra special pod brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. They've teamed up with That's What She Said to bring you two exciting episodes of the podcast featuring insightful conversations with captivating women who are blazing trails in the sports world and the great outdoors. Guests are going to range from a WNBA legend to a professional fly fishing guide to an NCAA conference commissioner. You'll hear from San Antonio Spurs assistant coach Becky Hammond, ESPN star Laura Rutledge, hardcore carnivore founder Jess Pryles and more and today Academy Sports and Outdoors bring you the legendary Cheryl Swoops the glass ceiling breaking commissioner Jackie McWilliams and the game changing Morgan Prater if you love it go to iTunes or podcast subscribe rate and review the pod 
Like, for instance, Nuckhead, who wrote, I always learn. No matter who your guest is, I always learn. I might not agree, but I always think. I stretch. I grow. I learn a new word. You're the person in sports I would like as my friend. Thank you, Nuckhead. That is very nice. And I love lifelong learners, so I'm down to be friends, too. Okay, let's get to my first guest. The first player to be signed in the WNBA, three-time WNBA MVP, six-time All-Star, three-time Defensive Player of the Year, and was named one of the league's top 15 players of all times at the 2011 WNBA All-Star Game. She's a three-time Olympic gold medalist, a Naismith Hall of Famer, a Women's Basketball Hall of Famer. It's Cheryl Swoops. And we talk about lots of basketball stuff, but more importantly, the challenges of getting pregnant during her first season of the WNBA the challenges of coming out and and her much publicized and and publicly watched love life and now her work as a farmer yes a farmer this is a great interview enjoy that's what she said so excited for another chance to get to chat with and hang with Cheryl Swoops we spoke during the last dance we've talked a lot about basketball in the in the times that we've spoken but i want to get to know the Cheryl Swoops of now which is a little bit different but first to get there we have to start with how you got here and some of your incredible firsts along the way. So I want to start when you were a kid. Did you know you were going to be an athlete right from the jump? I did. I didn't know if it would be a basketball player, but I knew I was going to be involved in sports in some capacity. Yeah. And you, your mom and dad divorced when you were very young, um, three months old, right? So it was yep. you and your and your three older brothers. Did your mom do it all alone? Did she remarry? Did you have family members that you kind of remember raising you along with her? Or was it a one woman job? No, it was as far as I remember, right? It was it was my mama. So it, I actually have two older brothers and one younger brother. Oh, OK. So I just remember my mom being that that go-to for everything. So my mom and dad divorced when I was three months old. So I never really knew my dad. Um, all I knew was, you know, what my mom would tell me, which wasn't very much because it was one of those things where it was like, eh, we don't want to talk about that. And, and honestly, Sarah, I think that's kind of typical in like the African-American household. It's, you know, when your parents divorce or separate, it's just not really anything we talk about. So my mom was all I knew. I eventually met my dad and I know I'm going off tangent a little bit, but I think it's kind of important. I met my dad for the first time. Um, so I'm 50 now and I met my dad for the first time um, about 15 years ago. Wow. And I mean, there was like really no emotions because I didn't know him. He was a complete stranger to me, but um, you know, going back to your question, I just, no, it was my mom. Like there weren't any relatives, cousins, aunts, uncles that stepped in and said, okay, well, we're going to help you. It was my brothers, myself, my mom. And, you know, she just did whatever she had to do to, to put food on the table and, and get us through to the next day, to be honest with you. And the brothers, two of them being older, uh, was there hooping at home? Is that how we got is that how we got a little bit gritty and figured out we could hold our own? Yeah. Um, you know, I knew at a very young age. So I started playing ball when I was seven and I started playing in what we call in little dribblers, um, <laughs> which what a cute I, name. I think it was like a West Texas little dribblers. Little dribblers is what we were called, <laughs> which was kind of the, you know, we had AAU also, 
But back then, AAU wasn't what it is today, right? Little dribblers was what AAU is today. And we traveled around, you know, really the state of Texas and just played um, teams that were our, our same age. But my brothers were the ones that really got me into basketball. And at the age of seven, there was just something about, you know, me being able to pick up a basketball and I felt in control, you know, regardless of who was there, my brothers were there or not there, younger, older, it was all about me and that basketball. So even at the age of seven, I knew that basketball in some way, right? I didn't know if it would be a professional athlete, but I knew that basketball in some way was going to change my life. And there was just something about, there was just something about the game um, that was magical to me. And, and in that, that time or that space, that moment when I was playing basketball, like nothing else in the world really mattered to me. Yeah. Yeah. So you obviously found great success. Um, were you ready and wanting to find the balance in college between basketball and education and what was next? Or once you found that basketball could take you places, did you focus on that and believe um, because the the WNBA didn't exist when you started college? Um, What did you think you were going to do when basketball was over? You know, I don't think I've ever really said this, but now I feel like I can. (laughs) You know, everybody talks about and don't get me wrong, because it is important, but everybody talks about being a student athlete, right? You're the student first and the athlete second, which which I completely agree with that because not every person who plays college ball, whatever sport, whatever sport, right, will go on to be a professional in that sport. Um, But for me, I was an athlete student. (laughs) Yeah. You know, because- I think most of the, not most, I think many are, the reason we don't allow for that is because the faux amateurism narrative of the NCAA that is required in order to prop up a system that's built on free labor requires us all to pretend <laughs> that the student is given as much of a resource as the athlete half is, which we know it isn't. Right. But that's a discussion for another day, too. Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, but you could admit it if you were more into the basketball side. Well, that no point. doubt I was like. I mean, I went to class, I studied, I I made good grades. Um, Honestly, I did enough to keep me eligible to play. Yeah. Um, My my mindset at a very young age, my freshman year of college was, and I don't want to say I hated school or college, but it wasn't like, like I, I wasn't crazy about it, you know? Because my focus was I am going to use my abilities as an athlete in this sport to take me places I never thought I could go. And and I didn't say to play in the WNBA because, as you said, it didn't exist. But it wasn't until I became probably a junior, even a senior in college, honestly, where I finally said, okay, this sport is going to allow me to go play professional basketball. But at the time it was overseas. It wasn't Mm -hmm. in the WNBA. And to me, that was enough because that was my focus. That was my goal. I want to be a professional athlete and wherever that takes me, if I have to go overseas and do that my entire career, then I think even at that age, I was prepared to do that. So 
the WNBA arrives just in time to keep you from, from, from necessarily going overseas. And you are the first player taken. Now it's a, the old system was essentially like allocated, like you're assigned to a team that was in part because this brand new WNBA wanted to appeal to the idea of players from some of the areas playing where they were from being from Texas, you were assigned to the Houston Comets. So you get assigned to the team and sign your contract and then find out that you're pregnant. So you give birth to your son (laughs) and you end up coming back within just a few months of having your son playing in the final third of the season, the very first WNBA season, the Comets, your team wins it all. I need to hear about this because this is it's it's not that long ago, but in terms of professional female athletes, understanding of female athletes and maternity, all that stuff, it, it was relatively new. It was not something that had been seen a lot. How did you feel? And was there a fear when you found out you were pregnant of, oh my gosh, this is my dream and can I still have it? God, man, you put a lot in that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> gosh, you know, um, so here's what I, I've always said. I've always said God puts me at the right place at the right time, you know? And the reason why I say that is because I graduate from college, I go overseas and, and I only played overseas for a short period of time, which was like five months in comparison to what players typically do, um, which is eight, nine months. And it may have been like three or four months for me only because I got homesick and was like, oh my gosh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. What country were you in? I was in Italy, a great country. Yeah. Um, But it just was, it was different. I was young. Um, I thought I was in love and, you know, with my son's dad. And it was like, no, I can't do this. So I actually came back home. I had a semester of school left at Texas Tech to graduate. So I came back home, um, finished that semester, graduated, got my degree, and then the national team was put together. So that 95, 96 national team. So for me, it was kind of like everything was kind of late. My path, my journey was laid out for me. Mm -hmm. So then I was selected for the national team, played on the Olympic team, WNBA starts. Um, And to your point, because it had never been done before. So when I found out I was pregnant, was I afraid and scared? Absolutely. But it was never a... a question or a matter of, oh my goodness, what do I do? Right. Um, it was more of not, not what do I do about the pregnancy and having my child, but it was more of a, what have I done to the league? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that was my pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was my thought. And that was my question because, you know, I was the first player signed, signed my contract. And now I have this, this sense of, oh my goodness, I am letting this league down, right? Because all of the marketing and all the hype, everything was around Cheryl Swoops and then Rebecca Lobo. Um, So I didn't say anything to anybody. I mentioned it to my agent and I talked to my agent and I said, I don't don't know what to do. Um, As far as telling, it was Val Ackerman and Renee Mm -hmm. Brown. And I said, I just don't know what they're going to say, what they're going to think. Um, so we waited until my first trimester was up before we said anything. So then we called Val and um, Renee. We had a conversation with them. 
And I have to tell you, it was the best conversation. Like I couldn't have imagined it. I couldn't have written it or drawn it to go any better. Um, Val was so supportive and said, listen, we're here for you. The league is here for you. You have your child, you stay healthy, take care of yourself. And when you're ready, we'll be here. Um, So that was a huge relief for me. But then I had to have a conversation with Nike. And that's the one I was like, oh my goodness. Like Mm -hmm. now what, you know, Nike had designed the shoe and I was having my shoe. And um, there was so many things that went through my head, Sarah, that I just, I, I tried to figure out how to, I guess, manage it all and take it one day at a time. Um, but the other side of that, I felt like, okay, now I have to show everyone, especially working moms, right? Like really how great we are mm-hmm. and that we can do this. We can have a very successful career and be a very successful mom at the same time. Um, and as you said, I didn't know anyone in professional sports that had done what I was about to do. So there was really no one I could go to and I could talk to and say, how do I maneuver this? Right. Like help me figure this out. So it was like a a trial by error. And, you know, luckily for me, I had a great um, support system. My mom was there and was like, listen, you have the baby, give me the baby um, (laughs) and and go do what you got to do. And I just felt so grateful and, and, fortunate that I had my mom in my corner because the other thing that was important to me, as you mentioned, was I had to get back, right? Like I I had to, not that there was pressure on me, but for me, I had to get back and play in the first inaugural WNBA season. It meant that much to me to be able to say that I was a part of of the inaugural WNBA season. Now I was out of shape and everything. I was going to say 55 pounds that you gained for that kid. So you came back and you were like, it was also important to me because I had to get back in playing shape. And that was the best way to do it was get back out there and, and win a title though. I mean, that's so, it's so great. And it was part of a dynastic stretch, the Comets four straight, um, as it's the 25th anniversary of the WNBA. Are you ever bummed that that team doesn't still exist every day? Yeah. Every day. Let, let me go back and say something to what you just said. To to be able to come back and be a part of that team. Um, now, the first year we won the championship, I think we kind of surprised everybody, right? Because people were like, well, Cheryl Swoops was out. Um, mm-hmm. So she didn't really play. How did that happen? Listen, I didn't know much about Cynthia Cooper because she had played overseas. So I didn't know much about her. Um and then we drafted Tina, right? Mm-hmm. And then we had Janeth Arcade. Like we had so many great pieces. So once I figured out who these women were and how great they were, I just wanted to come back and be a part. Do you know what I mean? Because listen, I I I I've seen Cynthia Cooper do some things <laughs> that I never saw a man or a woman do like she's, she's hella, hella, hella good and talented. And then you throw Tina in the mix and Janeth, like that team was just crazy good. Crazy um, good. That's why it's sad that it there's this good. legacy of, of this dynasty that helped build the league and it happens. There's expansion, there's contraction, all those things, but it is sad that there isn't this through line where you can then take your kid and they could take their kids to go see yeah. the same team that you were on. That's yeah, too bad. So every day I'm 
like I, I do, I think about it. And when I go to the Rockets games and, you know, I see our championship banners, but like, there's no place for, for me to retire my Jersey, yeah. you know, like things like that. I think about, but more than that, I think about what that franchise meant to the city. You know, the city of Houston was the fans were incredible. Um, the city, I just, I, I love everything about Houston. Um, so it, it breaks my heart every single day that we don't have a team. Like yeah. it just, you know, how, how do you have an organization that wins the first four WNBA championships and, and we have nothing now, like that's very disappointing and heartbreaking to me. We'll get right back to the interview, but first I also need to know your favorite word. Honestly, my word is okay. So here's why it's okay, right? Like that's why it's my favorite word because as I've gotten older and wiser, I've just come to realize that, or at least I believe that everything is going to be okay. And so even when people want to debate with me and, you know, when people ask me for my opinion, I say, it's my opinion. They ask me for mine, not yours. So when they want to come, you know, go back and forth, I just get to a point where I'm like, okay. Is there a better way to put an end to an adversarial conversation than just, okay, perfect. And such a versatile word. It can be genuine. It can be snarky. It can be affirmative or descriptive. It can be four letters. It can be two letters. Let us briefly bask in the glory of okay. And of Cheryl's assertion that everything will be okay. That's going to get us all through a lot of days here. Um, can we also bask in the absolutely wild etymology of the super simple two-letter word okay? Of course, meaning all right or correct. It's only been around since 1839 and is the sole survivor of a slang fad in Boston and New York when abbreviations of common phrases with deliberate misspellings were popular. So KG was no go, as if spelled K-N-O-W go. N-C for nuff said, C-E-D instead of said. And in the case of OK, it was an abbreviation for all correct, O-L-L instead of all, and correct with a K. How dumb is that? Who invented this idea of deliberately misspelling phrases and then abbreviating them? I don't know, but it, it's the one that lasted. And it was an election slogan by the OK Club, who were boosters of Democratic President Martin Van Buren's 1840 re-election bid. And it was an allusion to his nickname Old Kinderhook from his birthplace in a little New York village named Kinderhook. And Van Buren lost, but the word stuck partly because it was a Easy way to write approval on documents and bills, et cetera. Just okay. Uh, it became a noun in 1841 and then a verb by 1888. This is why I love this segment. It sounds so simple to say your favorite word is okay, but who knew? Who knew all of that? You love it. You love it. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is, in honor of Academy Sports and their love of helping us get outside, is free live. I'm sure I'm nailing that. Free live. I'll let the BBC's Maddie Savage explain it. Quote, the expression literally translates as open air living, was popularized in the 1850s by the Norwegian playwright and poet Henrik Ibsen, who used the term to describe the value of spending time in remote locations for spiritual and physical well-being. And today the phrase is used more broadly by Swedes, Norwegians and Danes to explain anything from a lunchtime run in the forest to commuting by bike or cross-country skis to joining friends at a lakeside sauna or just relaxing in a mountain hut. The concept is linked closely to almonds rotten, 
which means the right to roam. So Scandinavian countries all have similar laws that allow people to walk or camp almost anywhere as long as they show respect for the nature, the wildlife, and the locals. So first of all, I love that there's a whole word for living in tune with nature, um, like that's Cheryl getting outside and literally working the land or any of us just taking a lunch break to walk around a lake instead of sitting at a desk. Um, so I love this idea of free loose live. So in a sentence, as the weather changes first to fall, then winter, don't forget the powerful mood changing benefits of free loose live and keep getting outside, whether to walk, rake, skate, ski or snow angel through the year's coldest days. Now let's get back to the interview. You mentioned the shoe. Obviously, that's another one of your firsts that goes down in basketball history. The first women's player to have a Nike shoe named after you, the Air Swoops. How many boxes, how many pairs do we have rolling around the crib? Uh, I have a few. Um, so I have the very first one. And even that was the first one, that one is the one that's probably most special to me because it was the first um, now I have actually signed a few and just kind of given them away, um, just as giveaways. And just because I just, yeah. you know, felt like doing it, but I have to tell you of everything I achieved and accomplished and all the accolades, um, having my, my own shoe, I can't even tell you that's something I, I dreamed of as a kid, Right. Like that just doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> Too big to even drink. Bones. Yeah, you know, um, but when when that happened to me and for me, I immediately thought about how not myself, but how that was going to change the women's game and how it was going to change people's outlook on on female athletes, period. And then you, you talk about a brand as as big as as a Nike right? Who says, we're going to do something out of the box because this was so out of the box. Um, but they weren't afraid to take that chance. And I think that's what made me really truly appreciate the significance of having my own signature shoe and how big that was um, for so many young girls who were, were looking at that moment saying, is this possible? Right. And, and for me to be able to say, Oh yeah, it's possible. Not only is this possible, there's so many other things that are possible. And, um, I, I love being in that conversation when people talk about, you know, today, like who should be that next athlete. I have my thoughts on it, but, um, I just think it's great that we're even, you know, having that conversation today. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. I, if we had more time, I would make you get into all the different times you hung out with MJ and talked about your <laughs> Jordan contracts and your shoes. But alas, we have to move on. Uh, that'll have to happen another time. We got a lot of good MJ talk when you came on for the last dance. Um, so we're talking about all these firsts. You have in the public eye gone through all these different things that, that people are going to have opinions on um, positive and negative. Mm -hmm. And in October of 05, you announced you were gay. You were one of the very first high profile team sport athletes to do that at the time. And it, it became a part of your legacy. This, this willingness to put yourself out there in that way. You've now been married a couple of times to men, to a woman. Um, have you mostly enjoyed the opportunity to be representative of the LGBTQIA community sort of publicly, or has it been hard to have your love life scrutinized just because you're a public figure for something else? Um, so 
so let me let me rewind a little bit. So my my first marriage was to um, my son's dad. Uh, we were high school sweethearts. We were married for three years, um, you know, and and life happened. So when I filed for divorce from my first husband was kind of when I got in a relationship um, with with another woman. And it wasn't um, it wasn't at the same time. So I definitely want to clarify that. Like <laughs> he, she honestly was like a friend in the moment, right? Of everything mm-hmm. I was kind of going through, just needing somebody I could turn to and talk to. And she happened to be that person. Now we were never married. We were together for a while, but never, ever, ever married. Um, and now I am married to my husband. We've been married since what is this, 21? We got married in 17. Nice. Um, and, and I can honestly tell you, I'm at a better place just, just all around physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. Um, he's just a great guy for me. Um, so when, when I made that decision to, to come out, I'm doing these, like they can see my air quotes. (laughs) Um, it really honestly wasn't for publicity. It wasn't for, it wasn't for anybody but me. And the reason why I say that is because I think because when you're in the, the spotlight and you're, you know, your life is so public, people assume so many things and people think they know you. And I honestly had just gotten to a point where I was tired of people wanting to tell my story for me because mm-hmm. you don't really know my story. Yeah. You know, so I just got to a point where I was comfortable living my life the way I was living my life. And I felt like it was time for me to tell my own story because no one can tell your story better than you. Um, so that's why I made that decision to, to do that. But, but I will say, um, you know, one of the, the, the toughest questions I got asked back then, um, I didn't think it was tough, but I got a lot of scrutiny for it because people said, they asked me, they said, well, um, were you born gay? And I was like, absolutely not. I'm like, I I wasn't. And so they said, well, do you think people are? And I said, I I can't speak for everybody else. I can just speak for myself because no, I wasn't. And if somebody asked me that today, I would say the same thing because it, it, it hasn't changed. Um, you know, my mom used to say it was like a phase I was going through and I said, well, it was a long phase I went through, (laughs) um, you know, I just, I think everybody's different and everybody's story is different. And for me, I I was kind of at a, at a place or a point in my life where that was a part of my life. And now I've since, you know, kind of moved on and, and, and I'm happy, but I, but I love being, if you want to call it an ally for the LGBTQ community, um, you know, that's just, I don't know, maybe I always say I'm kind of different and I always look at myself and say, I feel like I'm the first for so many things and, and that being another one. But I just, I've just always been a true believer that everybody should be who they are, be themselves and yeah live their lives for right. themselves. And well, and it's fascinating how that, right. It's fascinating how assigning words and labels can both be incredibly helpful to people who want to know that there are other people like them and that they belong to a community, but they also can make things incredibly difficult because people want to then assign things to either some sort of binary or to fit within the idea of a label. And sometimes it's better to just accept that people make choices that 
their heart makes and whatever that looks like at any moment in your life. And for some people that might always be the same gender and some people it might be different and you could come and go through the world uh, falling in love with people and not their gender. And and like I said, it can be so positive to give that a name and it can also make things really difficult for people, which I'm sure for you with your marriages and and people would have judgment about the choices that you make and who you are. But again, no one's going to tell your story the way that you do. And, and so it, in the end, it's about being honest throughout. And that's why you become an ally because you're willing to do so in the moment and throughout. And then people really attach to that. I mean, you look at your career as a basketball player, Um, as a spokesperson, you worked for Nike for a while, you coached, you, you know, you did a lot of stuff that we expect from someone with your resume and your pedigree. And now you're pivoting again. And it's the unexpectedness. It feels like to me, there's like (laughs) the many lives of Cheryl swoops, like it, whether professionally or personally, there's this constant evolution and change. And, And the new one is Cheryl swoops, the farmer, which again, wouldn't have guessed it uh, back in the day, but you started this. Um, you you started this this new lifestyle with your husband, and uh, I guess tell me how you even get started, and then how you decide to create this whole movement of back to our roots. So there is a book coming, huh? Oh yeah, I think I, there I should be. About a title. I, I kind of like. I kind of It's like going to be a long book. <laughs> it's going to be a long, but there's a lot of chapters in the book. <laughs> I kind of like that title, though. Um, you know, Sarah, I just, I've, I've never been the type of person that wanted to just be in a box, right? And, and I think most of the time, people look at, at athletes and assume that when, when, when you're done playing, there, there are two things you'll do right? You'll either become a coach or you'll become a, a TV analyst, right? A commentator. Um, and I've, I've done both of those. And, and I will always have that passion and, and that fire in my heart for basketball because it did change my life. And, and, it, and it's just done so much for me. But, but I can tell you after my last um, coaching experience, I kind of sat down and just really looked at myself and said, what am I missing? Right? Like, like I, I love basketball and I will always love it. And, and, and I still have a passion for it, but my passion is really for helping and educating our, our youth, like our younger boys and girls. And so I can do that a different way, but what is that? Um, and it wasn't even my idea initially. It was, it was my husband, just a simple, Hey, you know what? We should, we should start growing our own food. And I kind of looked at him like, what? Like you've never done that. And I've never done that. (laughs) So don't know how that's going to happen. Um, but then I thought about where, where, where this, this world is in, in our country. And so, is 21. So about four years ago, I started my nonprofit Back to Our Roots. And the idea behind Back to Our Roots was to or is to educate our African-American youth on their ancestral heritage and, and where we come from. And reason being is I have found that so many I mean, a lot of our, our kids, but me being African-American, I relate to African-American kids. 
you know, and I found that so many of our African-American kids are struggling right now with, with identity in, in a sense of belonging, right? Like, where do I fit in this world? And so for me, I thought it was a great way to take some of our kids back to Africa and show them, you know, the, the slave dungeons and the W.B. Du Bois Museum and just kind of where we come from in, in hopes of, of inspiring them and empowering them to accept themselves for who they are. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I, I even went through that at a young age and, and, and I struggled with being OK with being me. So then COVID hit. Um, so we couldn't do the trips to Africa. So we tried to figure out another way to to stay involved in the community and keep our youth involved. Um, and so then that's when we decided to start growing our own food. And in doing that, we actually will bring kids out to, to our farm and show them and teach them how to be self-sustainable. And so we let them plant, you know, they pick a seed and they plant it, and then they kind of watch the growth and the evolution of it. And for me, it's more, it's not just about bringing them out here saying, here you go, you do it, but also teaching them the importance of understanding where your food comes from. Yeah. And as I've, as I've gotten older and, you know, I, I can't eat things the way I used to eat them, but growing stuff organically and eating it, like my body feels so much better and, and is so much healthier than even actually going to a grocery store and having to go buy vegetables. I haven't bought vegetables from a grocery store in a year. Wow. So, you are really and, doing it. This isn't well, just you know some tomatoes. This is no, a whole it's, thing. Um, it's, it's the real deal. Yeah. And especially in our community, in the African-American community, we just don't do that, right? Like we've gotten away from, from really spending that good quality time with family and also just, you know, understanding the importance of doing that. And through COVID, it really, you know, there's so much bad stuff that happened through it. But for me, I really tried to take that time to, to sit back and understand, like, honestly, I was like, okay, God, like what, what, what can I learn? And what can I get out of this time where we're just sitting at home, you know, because everything had stopped. It was like the world yeah. had stopped. Didn't go out to well, eat. That, that made a lot of people turn to either the home within or without outside, right? Like what are we doing uh, in the spaces directly in front of us when we slow down for a minute to recognize, have you ever heard of um, Ron Finley, the gardener? He goes by the name, the gangster gardener. I have heard of him. Someone, someone else brought him up to me. You got to get him out. You got to get him out to you because what he started doing was gardening in these empty flat spaces um, in in urban areas in L.A. Um, and he was planting fruits and vegetables yep. along these lands between the sidewalk and the curb and taking advantage of it and teaching people in the area how to improve the food that they were eating and, and change food deserts. And, you know, it, it's pretty incredible the power that you can have in teaching and showing that next generation. He, he got arrested a bunch of times for it and was told he wasn't allowed to use that <laughs> land, even though it was not being used. So yeah, you should, you should get him out to your, um, to your farm. He's pretty, he's pretty awesome. To do that. Um, so you guys do a lot of stuff. You have the farming and gardening field trips, basketball clinics, seminars with guest speakers. You can have him come to one of those, the mentoring programs, the traveling, um, has it changed your life outside of the actual everyday practices of running a farm to slow down and live 
where just the space around you is different in terms of where you live and the interactions that you have regularly are different, maybe more often with uh, puppies and animals than people. <laughs> Listen, my, um, it's so crazy because I never thought as an athlete, right. And, and just the fast pace of living and in the traveling, I never thought I could live the life I'm living today if that makes sense. So we, we have about 13 acres and we are deep. When I say in the country, like <laughs> we're deep in the country. Well, you said your neighbor is several miles away. So that yeah. told me all I need to know. You've got one of those driveways that goes on forever. <laughs> but it's, it, it has been the most eye-opening experience for me. Um, one, my husband and I, it's just the two of us. So we do everything, but, but I, but I also, have a lot of great me time to focus on, 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 on my passions and, and kind of sort of like the legacy that I really want to leave outside of sports. Because when people talk about sports and they talk about basketball and and you hear Cheryl swoops, you, you're going to think about Cheryl, the basketball player, but this, this experience for me has, I guess kind of helped me myself even identify with me being more than just a basketball player. For sure. And I do feel like the impact that I'm able to, to make on people's everyday lives is greater than the impact I was able to make as a basketball player. Well, this is, you know, an interesting thing about the identity of an athlete is at some point, your body can't do what it used to. And so physically you are not actually competing. So there's the legacy of what you were able to do before. And then there's the choice of whether is the, is the rest of life using that legacy for something great or even creating new ones. And like I said, the many lives of Cheryl swoops, you're obviously figuring out how to move and change based on what's interesting you and and, and what drives you. Um, You're also, I mean, I, I didn't expect you to be a farmer. I also didn't expect you to be a fisher woman. I don't even know if that's a term, um, but I'm also talking to Morgan Prater, who's a professional fly fishing instructor for this pod. And I found that you have your own big fish store. You, uh, you competed in a celebrity sort of fishing tournament. And first of all, I heard Dion was there. So that was just probably straight. Tra- Can you trash talk in fishing? Listen. That probably had to happen. Yeah, but let's talk about Dion. Okay. So <laughs> let me let me let me go back a little bit. Um, I, I do not call myself a fisher woman, oh, I guess. <laughs> um, it's solely for recreation. But I have to say, with Academy in their fishing tournament, just getting that invite, I was like, oh my goodness. Like, if my brother can come with me, I'm so there. My brother is the, I say the professional fisherman. Um, but that experience alone, there were some incredible people there. Um, Jimmy Allen was there. Yeah. The country Dion. music guy. Yeah. Yep. So Dion Sanders, he was talking so much smack. <laughs> so here's what I found. Yes. He ended up winning first place. Oh boy. But here's what I found oh, out. Oh boy. Just what we need. <laughs> but, he, but he didn't catch any of the fish. His team caught the fish. Oh man. So I said, Dion, you can't talk smack to me about winning. He was like, yeah, but my team won. I was like, fair <laughs> enough. But you didn't catch anything and I didn't catch anything. So we're, about so we're even. even. We we're even. That's right? great. That's great. I just love the idea of trash talking during a celebrity fishing tournament. Oh, yeah. One more thing. This is a place for rants, raves, 
everything in between. Somewhere for me to tell you what to read, what to watch, what to listen to. And today, it's bonus pod time. So keep listening after Cheryl's Spanish Inquisition for my conversation with two super badass ladies who are working in predominantly male industries, taking uh, risks, talking about imposter syndrome, finding the courage to step into new uncomfortable spaces, and talking about the lessons that they learned in sport that allowed them to get where they are. So stick around. That's what she said. Like I said, you've had many lives and you are a very busy woman. So I'm so grateful that you were able to come on and talk. And you do have to do one last thing before you leave it's the thing that nobody expects and everybody gets didn't expect a kind of spanish inquisition (laughs) nobody expects the spanish inquisition the spanish inquisition number one your current career so we're going to go with farming and basketball they're both canceled what job do you do instead um they're both canceled what job do i do instead um Oh, boring. I, I, um, I work in the Houston Rockets front office. Okay. Technically that's basketball, but I'll give it okay, to you okay, the front okay. office, front office is different. So I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> okay. number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Mm. So this one will probably be serious. Um, Honestly, I'm I'm scared every day when I wake up for my son as a black man in this country, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think if I remember, weren't you on with the Levitard show talking about how you used to follow him when he would go on runs mm-hmm. to make sure he was pro- safe? Pro- probably the, the most so scared scary. I was was when the, you know, the whole George Floyd thing happened mm-hmm. and just not being able to get my son on the phone. Um, you know, so many thoughts start running through my mind. Yeah, it's an experience on that one, but no, but I mean, that's an experience that so many people had, it would never even occur to them that if their son wanted to go for a jog, they, they would follow in a car to make sure that everything's okay. And that's your reality. And people need to hear that because they need to know that, you know, uh, number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Oh, um, so I heard LaChina say chef, (laughs) so I'm not going to say that one. That was a good one. Um, I would say a makeup artist. Oh, that would be a good one. Then I could do makeup on some of the the best out there. Like, yeah, ends of that would be very cool. Uh, number four, what current celebrity from music, politics, TV, or sports would you most like to be your best friend? Michelle Obama. Mm-hmm. Yeah, duh. She seems like the best. She does, um, right? Number, yeah, like really fun <laughs> and smart and cool. Uh, number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? My biggest, most meaningless pet peeve. Um, I hate when someone, doesn't have to be my husband, it can be company, my brothers, <laughs> when they come over and leave just a corner of orange juice or anything in the bottle and they put it back in the fridge. Yep. Yep. That's that's... not meaningless to me, but (laughs) no, that's very important. It's critical. (laughs) Uh, Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Um, (laughs) um, okay. So this one just happened. Um, my husband and I kind of go back and forth. Well, he's like, God, you snored so bad last night. And I'm like, I don't <laughs> snore. Like I told him I don't snore. Well, the other day he played a recording for me. Oh no. 
he recorded me snoring mm. and I laughed, but I was so embarrassed because it was really <laughs> bad. It was so bad. Yeah, that's my, I, every once in a while I'll take a video for my husband and I'll ask him whether he thinks it was him or the dog. And it's usually, it's really tough to tell. It's a toss up usually. I told him, I thought he got that off of Google somewhere. <laughs> it was that bad. Oh no. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Mm. Um, reaching out to my friends. Yeah. I don't do a very good job of that. That's a good one for sure. Uh, any musician or band alive or dead can play your next party. Who is it? Ooh, dang. Just one. Yeah. I'm going to go with her. Ooh, good choice. Yeah. Number nine. What would you consider your biggest failure? Ooh, 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 ooh. My biggest failure. Um, golly, can I skip and come back? <laughs> no, I mean, listen, this is the hardest one for successful people because most people who are, are able to move past things and look back at them. And this was, this was good. Cause it led to this, or this was a great pivot moment. Most people rewrite those failures as positive so they can keep it moving. So this is one that a lot of people have trouble thinking of something. So I don't blame you for that. Um, I'll let you pass on it for now. I'll come back. Okay. Number 10, what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Um, Caring, inspiring, and loyal. Good ones. Very good. Bonus question. Who should I have on this podcast that I would find interesting? Could be from any industry. Michelle Obama. I mean, duh, do you got a hookup? Because <laughs> I mean, everyone me. says that. And oh then I'm my like, God. Great. I would oh, love oh. to. Do you have her number? Oh, gosh, <laughs> I don't. But we, yeah. you need to make that keep happen. working on that and keep you they've got that, that presidential library here in Chicago. I just got to find a. I got I got to find my in figured out. Hmm. I figured out. All right. right. Did you think of somebody uh, who knows somebody? But you need to make yeah. that one. Happen. I know some people who know some people, but I don't know if they know enough. <laughs> OK. Um. <laughs> Failure. Failure. I'm, I'm going to say, um, although I don't, I don't look at it as a failure, look at it as a lesson, but I'm going to say, um, not, I guess in a way making my son feel like life is easy. Hmm. You know what I mean? Um, instead of like, there were tons of lessons I taught him growing up, which I still do. But I, I think growing up around the WNBA and, you know, me and traveling and doing all that, it was so always so easy to kind of throw money at things right. for him instead of teaching him that it's not as easy as it might look. Right. You know what I mean? That's always such a tough balance for parents, right? Is yeah. you want it to be easier for them. You want them to not have to struggle, but you also need them to learn how to deal with adversity and figure it out for themselves when those things come up. 
That's the, uh, they used to talk about helicopter parents and now they say snowplow. So the new thing is snowplow parents where they want so badly for their kids to have a good life that they clear out everything in front of them. And it Mm. actually makes things more difficult for them because they don't learn how to deal with adversity. I like that. Yeah. And now that he's 24 and he's playing professional basketball in Portugal. Naturally. There are time, there are things today that I'm like, no, you got to figure that out. Like, don't pick up the phone and call me to fix it, you mm-hmm. know? And so I kind of wish I would have done that when he was younger. He'll figure it out, though. He's still young. He is. He's, he, he, is he is figuring it out. I was guilty of calling my parents for shit I should have figured out <laughs> a lot, hard, too. Though, you know, yeah. as a parent, and especially when you have the ability to fix those things, you know what yeah. I mean? Totally. Yeah. So you want to do I'm it. still learning too. Mm-hmm. how to say no. Well, well, that'll, that'll be a chapter in the book, Cheryl. I'll <laughs> just have to write about it in the book. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. It was great to You're talk welcome. to you. I, I want you to get hooked up with the gangster gardener. I want to come out and see the farm and Would uh, love for you to come yeah, anytime. So fun. Thanks so much for chatting. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That's what she said. That's right. Bonus pod time. A conversation with. My name is Jackie McWilliams, commissioner of the CIAA. And my dilemma is, is that I am not in Colorado with Morgan this morning. My name's Morgan Prater. And my dilemma is that I am not on the river right now. Well, didn't they just perfectly set the scene for how this interview looked over Zoom? Jackie at her office, me in my radio closet, and Morgan, who is rocking an adorable plaid jacket and this fashionable giant hat, sitting outside in a gorgeous Colorado setting with a home behind her under a blue sky, steps away from the mountains and the river that she'd rather been fishing in. So uh, I don't know what the fix is because there's no fix for wanderlust, Commissioner McWilliams. You've all got it. And my fix for Morgan came about 30 minutes later when the interview ended and she got to go hit the river. That's what she said. I got my two former college volleyball players here, two women in male-dominated fields, two women who are inspiring and empowering women with their work. Uh, I love that tie. We've got our two volleyballers. Uh, Commissioner McWilliams, I want to start with your athletic background, kind of growing up and your time at Hampton. So uh, tell us about being a two-sport star. Yeah, you know, um, I'm from Colorado Springs, Colorado, where sports um, and being living close to the Olympic Training Center was like a dream for a young girl like me to be able to go and watch women volleyball players. I mean, Flo Hyman and Debbie Green were some of my idols. I thought I could go to the Olympics like them at 5'2". But, you know, choosing Hampton as a two-sport athlete was probably the best decision that I could make. And going to a historically black college and university, playing on a national basketball championship team, and playing with some incredible women and winning winning two conference championships. Um, Because I was a military kid, we traveled all the time, so I never could stick to one thing. So I was a gymnast, I did baton twirling, roller skating, gymnastics, you name it, the list goes on. Um, But to find volleyball and even basketball and to run track in high school became those three sports that I could advance in pretty well. And it was consistent because you can play volleyball anywhere and you can dribble a ball anywhere and you can run as fast as you can in the park with the boys and the girls wherever you are. And so just finding that niche of what I was really good at and having coaches around me in high school to really encourage me to to get better in my craft in the game was pretty exciting. So I really give a lot of credit to Coach Montel and uh, Shirley Diggs in Colorado Springs that um, encouraged this young Black girl to play two sports, 
um, and to, to love the game and then go to college to participate at Hampton University in Excel. I'm sorry, did you say five foot two? Yeah, I said five foot three, but the book says five five. So I'm going to just. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Mine always said like six, two to make me seem extra Mm -hmm. scary. Okay. So (laughs) a college volleyball and basketball player at five, two, three, four, five ish. That says enough about having some grit and some spunk for sure. Um, That's incredible. Okay. So uh, Morgan, I, I, I need to hear about where you grew up and how you got into, into volleyball. Yes. Yeah, so um, I'm from a town called South Lake, Texas. Um, it's in between Dallas and Fort Worth. And I grew up playing soccer. Soccer was my first love. I started when I was about six years old and played all the way up till I was 17. Um, it was around that time when I turned 17 that I just got burnt out of soccer and um, volleyball was becoming the, the new up and coming sport and all my friends were getting involved in it. And um, I just remember driving to soccer practice one day and telling my mom, you know, I'm really burnt out and I think I want to switch to volleyball. And um, so from then on, I didn't touch a soccer ball. I put everything into volleyball and started club at seventh grade, Um, you know, worked my way up. Um, I'm only five, seven, so I'm not on the tall side. Um, So I Mm -hmm. had to work to play the position that I wanted to play. I wanted to be a hitter. I wanted to smack that ball down. So um, I really had to work hard to um, to earn a position in the position that I wanted and um, to, you know, earn a scholarship and, and go on to play in college. And and um, gosh, some of the best years of my life. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade any of those years. What did uh, what was the experience like for you in college? Um, I will have to say it was a rough start. Um, the school that I went to, it, it was kind of unique. So I got to play at two different levels. Um our University of Arkansas Fort Smith was a junior college when I first joined. So it was D3. Um, and, you know, I had some offers to some smaller D1 schools and um, decided to go with D3 because I wanted to play and I would also be closer to home. Um, I was kind of a homebody. So I stuck with Arkansas Fort Smith, which was only a five hour drive from where I was from. And my freshman year, um, you know, you don't just come in as a freshman and just start right away. You have to earn your spot and your position. And I finally did that as a freshman. And the first game that I ever started in as a freshman, I blew my ACL, my MCL, my meniscus. I blew it out. And, um, you know, a lot of people could sit there and like play the poor me card. Um, you know, I had to sit on the bench and recover, but that year sitting on the bench, even though I lost a year of eligibility, I learned so much about the game that I thought I already knew, but I learned so much by sitting on the bench and watching um, that I was able to come back that next year and be stronger than ever and play. And we actually went to um, the NC, the junior, uh, junior college division, uh, the, the national championship, and awesome. we got runner up. So wow. um, it was a pretty cool experience to come back from an injury and to be a part of a team and all those girls that could take it all the way to the national championship. It was an honor. So, um, Gosh, it was a, got- a bumpy start, yeah. <laughs> it was a bumpy start, but we finished strong. We got two ladies with championship pedigree here. That's impressive yeah. going all the way at the collegiate level. Uh, commissioner McWilliams, your, your time as a player ends, um, you jump right into coaching. So you're 23 years old and you're coaching college athletes who are just a few years younger than you. What did you learn from that experience? 
Wow, that's a great question. I um, This past weekend, I was just inducted into the Virginia Union University Hall of Fame as Congrats. a Congrats. And, and administrator there. And at first I was like, really? Like as a coach and administrator. But when I think about, you know, the first job opportunity I had at 23 and to be able to coach women who were three and four years younger than me, how fast I had to grow up. Um, and fortunately, I had you know, some great coaches and mentors that were young as well and exemplified leadership, even at a young age. So I knew how to walk into this position or into these positions, being mature and learning as I go, but really trying to be the best example I could be for women um, and young women. And so to still be connected to them, we're in a group chat now. They're just really proud and excited that I coach them and they become the women, you know, that I wanted them or desired them to be, whether it's educators, professionals, moms. Um, some of them coached after me when I left the program. Two of my players end up coaching in the program. Um, but to be able part of to be a part of a program and to watch the growth. I read an article when I first got there and I had goals. I knew that the program was challenging, the funding was challenging. But the one thing I made clear that my team would always look good when we walked into a gym, regardless of how the results were, and that we would give 100% every time we came to practice and every time we showed up. And they did. And so to end up having a, you know, a pretty decent record, getting to the championship that never had happened prior to me getting there. And then also I coached with the women's basketball and also with the men's basketball team. That was wow. pretty incredible as well to be one of the first women to ever coach with, uh, be an assistant coach for a men's program. And at the time, Ben Wallace was on the team, which was oh pretty boy. Fun to see his growth <laughs> and where he is. But I just think it was a phenomenal opportunity as a young professional um, to be around other men to allow me to have a seat at the table. I was the only female on the staff at the time. So I'm, gr I'm quite, quite grateful um, to be able to have be, to be able to coach and hopefully been a great impression on these young people. That's incredible. I can only imagine a young Ben Wallace. That would have been uh, never a dull moment. Never. Um, so your time there eventually leads to different roles within the CIAA. You end up at Norfolk State University, Morgan State University, and then eventually you take on this role as the CIAA commissioner. First woman to serve as commissioner for the CIAA, first appointed African-American commissioner representing Division Two, Three, and one in the NCAA. So when you get this job, Let's start with inside. Was there self-doubt of there haven't been there hasn't been anyone that looks like me that's done this? Can I do it? You know, initially, um, this job was my dream job. So I went in like, this is my job. And then when I got the job, I was like, oh, crap, this is really my job. <laughs> think, you know, I think as women, oftentimes we have these imposter syndrome, right? And when you look around and see that maybe you are the only one and you're around mostly men and, and some women and, and supported by them, but to be in the role and not see you in the role can make you feel like, do I really belong here? And then to think about all the things that are required in the position, it's very different being a second person in charge than actually being the one who everyone is looking at you to make decisions um, for the lives of young people, for your institution, making contracts with sponsors, you name it, it was scary for me. I mean, I really thought I was prepared. Um, and I was in one sense. On another, I had to grow up. And that emotional intelligence, I mean, it had to kick in pretty quickly. And so, again, I'm just grateful that I had great board members who wanted me to succeed and their presidents. So to be in the midst of other presidents and leaders that feel sometimes the way that I do 
into encourage and empower me in the position um, was actually life changing to remind me as one of my presidents said, you are the commissioner. You can make a decision. I go, well, dang, I am the commissioner <laughs> to, to receive, you know, the power that they have given me and then to use it in a way that is good and benefits what I'm supposed to do was um, life changing. So I don't have the imposter anymore, but I will tell you that I dealt with it for some, probably a couple of years until I can get my feet on the ground. So that's internally. What about externally? Did you hear either directly or through the grapevine about people who had doubts or pushed back because of your race or gender? Oh, absolutely. And still, I mean, it, it is, um, it's disappointing at times. And sometimes it's women, um, you know, probably more so women than I have dealt with men. Um, but I, you know, like on social media in the beginning, I had men that said, we need a man in the office, but they have five daughters, you know, after mm-hmm. my friends have done the research about the person who posted it. Mm-hmm. We do, I do have, external folks that work on my behalf. oh i have a crack team as well whenever people come at me i don't ask for it people just come exactly. up with the receipts i'm like thank you for doing exactly. the work for me. <laughs> i mean there are some cruel folks out there but i do think you know once you get your feet on the ground and you you become extremely credible and trustworthy and people know that you're doing the work on behalf of who you say like my mission is real to make a difference and be the difference and i don't waver off of that and i'm pretty a consistent as athletes we're pretty consistent about how we do things and how we practice and how we show up and i know people see that i'm consistent but every now and then you'll have a naysayer here and there but i just got to let them be who they are and keep it moving because majority of the people are extremely supportive that one or two will make you feel like the imposter and that you're not doing your job so i've learned to just not be distracted by the ones who don't give any earth or breath to what I do every day. Yeah. I think it was uh, Tina Fey who said, never accept a no from someone who can't give you a yes. They don't have any power. They're yeah. not in charge of anything. Their yeah. their no means nothing. Yeah. And, and one of my mentors said to me to be so good, they can't say no to you. And if you continue to do the work and prove you've got it, then in the end, the doubters start to fall away because they see that they see the product. Oh. Um, you know, Morgan, I, I was uh, watching a video and you talked about um, how difficult it is to have an identity as an athlete for your whole life. And then when you're done playing, look around and wonder who am I and and right. what am I if, if I can't identify? And I feel that so much because I was a college athlete as well. Tore my Achilles like out in the world. Gosh. I thought I would be running marathons or doing tough mutters or competing in every single, you know, athletic possibility around me. And, and my body's still recovering from the ways that I messed it up in in all the sports I did. So it's been really hard for me. How did you figure out for yourself when sports ended, you know, who you were and who you wanted to be? Well, you know, it took a little bit of, of figuring out. Um, Like you said, your mind is still saying, go, 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 but your body's saying no. And I was at that point in my volleyball career after college was over, you know, I had the opportunity to possibly go play professionally overseas. And I just had an inner dilemma with myself. Like, do I want to do this to my body? Do I want to continue this? Or do I just want to jump into the real world? And at the time, you know, against my better judgment, I decided to jump into the real world and, um, transitioning from being an athlete to having to wake up at 6am to go to practice every day. You have such a set schedule to like, okay, now I have to make my schedule. Now I have to go make my money. You know, I have to support myself. I don't have a coach now telling me what to do and where I need to be and where I need to go. And, um, 
you know, it was, it was very scary. I, I have to say, you're just thrown into this real world and pharmaceutical sales was not fulfilling me. And I needed something to fulfill that, that piece that was missing after college sports was over. And, um, Luckily, I had a, an amazing man in my life who loves the outdoors. And instead of taking me to, you know, fancy bars and restaurants, he took me fishing <laughs> and I it sparked a new passion. And I grew up around fishing, but I was never really like taught certain things about fishing. And it was a whole new sport for me. And so that kind of created, you know, a whole new industry of, of new talents that I could learn and become good at because as athletes, I feel like we're competitive always. We're always going to have that competitiveness mm -hmm. in us <laughs> and want to win and be good. And this was something that I was not the best at. And I wanted to prove to my husband that I could be good at this and maybe even be better than him at this. So so you meet your husband, he takes you fishing, you get hooked. And I believe the, I believe the, uh, the, the, the line the is the tug is the drug. The tug is the drug. It is. <laughs> Explain I use that. it every day. I use it every day to clients. I just had a friend up here in Colorado. She's never been fly fishing before. And what are the odds we're here together at the same time? So I took her fishing and I told her, Leanne, the tug is the drug, you know, and she's laughing at me and, um, she hooks up to a fish. And once you hook that fish, you will get what I mean when I say the tug is the drug. You just have adrenaline running through your body. You don't think about anything else but you and that fish in that fight and getting it to the net. Mm -hmm. And it's like a drug. It takes over your body. It's adrenaline. You're shaking after if you land a big fish. Um, it's just something magical. And I, 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 it's something that everybody should experience. And this girl that I took fishing is afraid of fish, does not <laughs> like to touch fish, has never caught a fish in her 33 years of life. So anybody can do it. I just, I love how, how right you are. And when I think about it, sometimes it's so weird to picture the people who never really played any organized sport. So they've never had a coach. They've never really understood that innate desire to constantly learn and then excel and, and, and beat something, whether that's an opponent or a score or a record for yourself. And I think those of us that spent a lifetime doing that, we then approach everything in life that way, whatever right. it is, I want to learn how to do it. I want to do it yeah. better. Every time I want to yeah. do it better than exactly. everybody else at a certain point, I'll give myself a little bit of runway, but yeah. by a certain point, I better be better than everybody at this. Exactly. Or else I'm going to keep working at it until I am. <laughs> and it's always funny when I'm around people who are like, Oh, I'm just not really competitive. I don't like games. And I'm like, what? Uh, okay. Yeah. I don't understand yeah. that. Um, Those people are intimidated by me. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They're like, we don't want board game night with you again. You need to relax. We're, we're all trying to have fun here. It's just, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's never just a game. Uh, we're winners. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Commissioner, I heard you recently doing an interview, or I, I guess I read it, uh, and you were talking about balance and balance for yourself in your role, but also balance for all the athletes that you're sort of overseeing. And, and the line was my biggest challenge myself is trying to meet the standards of others when I should set my own standards, rules, and boundaries through my faith and mission to impact and be the best that I can be. And I think you were thinking not only of your work, but your daughter and just being a, a human on this earth, trying to balance all the things. How has that progressed and evolved as you've gotten older, that understanding of both balance and also the interior standards versus the expectations of others? Yeah, you know, I think when you go through certain experiences and you, I mean, the older you get, I'm 52 now. So, 
you know, there are some things that I'm just not going to compromise my time and my life with. And then I just got married two months ago to my congratulations. Yeah. yeah and I should have married an athlete the first time. So there's <laughs> a difference. But um, I think the balance, it's a pendulum. You know, I see it as a pendulum swing. And we talk about this. My pastor and I have had this conversation, you know, when it's time to go and you're ready to the, the block start and the, the whistle blows, you go and you go hard. You know, but then when you come back off that swing, you know, who's there to catch you? You know, where can you take the breaths and where can you find to use your time wisely with the people that you love and want to be around? And the mission is true. You know, I value my faith. I value my family and I value the work that I get to do every day. But when my faith is off balance, I'm not good spiritually, um, mentally and socially to the people around me. Um, when my family's not balanced, I'm not good there either, right? So I'm just trying to get the swing of thing of trying to cook for my daughter today, today, mm -hmm. after four days. And so, and that's important to me because I value family, I value community, and I value making sure that the connections are real. But when the pendulums are swinging, I mean, everybody knows around me, she's out, she's out the box and everybody just needs to work around <laughs> to back and catch her. And I'm with that with my family as well, my husband and even Simone with all of her activities. When it's school time and certain things going, she's on that swing and I've got to be there to support her and allow her to be her best self. Being in sports is tough, you know, and being married to somebody who works in sports is tough because we are go-getters. We travel hard, we work hard, um, but when we land, we're looking for a safe place. And that for me in that balance is having a safe place to land but allowing me to be on that high of a swing to do the job that I can at the best ability. And when I'm just done, just know that I'm going to be there. I got, you got me full throttle, but you got to let me do this over here first yeah. so that I can be the best person when I land. You know, you, you also talk about having to figure out self-care because it allows you to care for others and do your job better when you are in a good spot. And that includes getting outside, staying healthy. Yeah. You talk about walking, strength workouts, getting back to volleyball and basketball with friends and skates. You mentioned pulling out <laughs> your skates and staying active. I need to hear, are they rollerblades? Are they roller skates? Are we doing yeah, this at a, at a rink? Are we doing this on the beach? Where are we? I want to see and hear all about this. I love roller skating. So that was the thing I picked back up. Now, Morgan, you, my husband is a hunter, a fisher, all of that. So we did some love it this summer in Mississippi. My dad's neighbor has a huge pond. And you're right. When you get that fish that bites your uh, hook, it's yes. like it is on. Like everybody <laughs> is cheering, right? But the yes. stuff I keep in my car wherever I go. So even when I drop my daughter off to her program, I get out and I skate as long as it's a clean uh, space and it has my skates have color the wheels turn color so this past week the little girls that were outside were like mommy look at her skates and they were waving and I get the thumbs up it is just a different type of exercise and a way of getting some cardio but really doing what I love now I can't do all the twirling skate skating was one of the things I did as a kid as well I had lessons every week my mom made me my little Dorothy Hamill outfit. <laughs> Love to skate. Um, but for me, it's just another, you know, place of letting some energy out. I put on my skate music and I just, I just tune out. I need to I walk something at least two or three times a week to get my blood flow. But a lot of it is because there's so much on my head. I need a place to release it and, and exercising helps me. And I don't exercise like 
I used to as an athlete, but I got to walk or do some skating at least um, to get me going. God, you got me inspired because I used to rollerblade all the time. First, when I moved back to Chicago after college, I'd go up and down the lakefront because yeah. I was, I mean, I was in my early 20s. So I was like, I could get a tan and exercise because I don't have to wear a sports yeah. bra because you're, you know, you don't have to wear all the gear yeah. to keep it all in. You could right. wear a bikini and rollerblade. You get your son, you get your exercise, yeah. you watch some dudes <laughs> play volleyball while you're rolling by, you know, maybe you find some dates. I don't know. Maybe it happened, but I haven't done it in so long because, and then I moved to LA and I did it all over in LA too on the beach. And I just, my rollerblades are calling. They're calling me from oh, the dust of my God. closet. It's been too long. I actually, um, my birthday party last year, I was, I was, I hadn't put the deposit down. I was still scheduling, but I was going to rent out a whole roller skating rink and it was going to be studio yeah. 54, 1970s disco glam theme, yeah. renting out the roller skating rink and COVID hit and I never got to do it. So oh, I'm, I, you've man. got me back. I'm, I, maybe that's next now. year. Maybe that's next it. year. Yeah. It's fun. So fun. Um, all right. I'm just loving somebody, especially who knows your job, just walking by and be like, is that the commissioner over there? Just roller skating in the park. Like, yeah. They panic. They're like, do you have a helmet? You should see some of the stuff I get on my yeah. ID. And oh, I bet. Oh, my, my goodness. God. Commissioner, do you have your helmet? Do you have? My husband. Wrist guards and knee I'm like, I got all the gear, people, but let me just do my thing. I got That's it. awesome. Um, Morgan, uh, your office is uh, outside. Yeah, you don't have to yes. escape the office. Uh, in order to get outside and 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 feel like you're you're staying healthy, but I, I right. watched this um, Academy Sports in in her element video, and yes. first of all, just gorgeous the aerial shots of where you work and where you get to spend your days. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the office, the area that you work, and the views, everything. It's pretty amazing. Um, I can I have to say not a day goes by that I take for granted. I, I thank the Lord every morning when I wake up and I drive into my office. I'm just so grateful to get to work out in the place that I do. Um, like I said, trout don't live in ugly places. So wherever <laughs> you go fish for trout, it's going to be gorgeous. Um, and me and my husband wanted it to be that way. Um, we wanted to wake up every day and just see God's glory and to not have Mm. Although it can be stressful being a guide, it's not all rainbows and butterflies. It is work, um, but it's it beats some of the other jobs that I've had and and tried. So um, getting to be outside every day and seeing something new—that's another thing—is like it's it's always something different. You don't step into the same office. The river is ever changing. Those fish are constantly moving. You know, there's something new to be seen um, or to be learned every day. So. Um, I'm super, super blessed to get to work in the outdoors and I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. You make it sound so romantic right. and it actually is because you talk about you and your husband falling in love and, and, you know, bonding yes. over fishing. My aunt actually uh, was single in, and it, she was, you know, later in life, everybody had already been married and she's looking around. She's like, you know, if, if I, if I want to meet new people, I have to maybe go to new places or try new things. Uh -huh. So she went on a fly fishing trip had never gone, didn't know anybody else on the trip. And that's where she met her husband. He was wow. doing the same. He was widowed and was looking to meet new people. And they met uh, on the river, in the river, isn't, I suppose. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That's, I mean, nature really does bring people together. And, you know, I tell my mom this, she, she kind of picks at me, but, you know, we work Monday through Sunday, you know, we're, we're on call for trips and, 
she's like, you need to go to church. And, you know, sometimes I'm working on Sundays and I tell my mom, you know, I'd rather be on the river thinking about God than being in church thinking about the river. Yeah. You know, so (laughs) I I get the best of both worlds every day. That's So tell tell me about where specifically your main work is. I know you're in Colorado now, but you're 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 based out of Oklahoma. Yeah. So I'm, I'm fishing for myself here in Colorado, but me and my husband, we work year round in um, a, a, a town called Hocha town, or some of you might know broken bow, Oklahoma. Um, it's Southeastern Oklahoma. And we are at the foothills of the Kiamichi mountain range. And it is absolutely breathtaking. You wouldn't think that Oklahoma has little mini mountains and tall <laughs> pine trees and trout swimming in the river. Um, so it's, it's a beautiful, it used to be a hidden gym. I will say now it is a major tourist attraction. So if you are looking to get away and clear your mind, um, and get out in nature and want to hike and kayak and fish and horseback ride and all the nature things, Broken Bow, Oklahoma is definitely one of those attractions. And for a lot of people who live, you know, in the cities like Dallas, um, Oklahoma city, Arkansas, they can all travel, you know, three, four five hours to this destination and do trout fishing. Otherwise you'd have to go to Colorado or Idaho or Montana, you know, places that are pretty far. So it's, it's a unique little spot that I'm at. That's really cool. Uh, given the sales pitch for Oklahoma, I love it. Yeah. Um, one of the things you said in that, in her element video is that you wanted to empower women to feel confident outside. It's so fascinating to think about the messaging that we get throughout our lives about what should matter most to us. And that's, you know, are your nails done? Does your hair look good? What are your clothes? Are you, are you ladylike? (laughs) And instead we miss a lot of women miss out on the beauty and the joy of just being out in nature and not caring whether your clothes look cute and your fingernails are dirty. And I love the idea that you want to tell women that it's okay and that they should want to be outside and be thinking about things other than those, those moronic messages we've been getting. You know, I think it, it clicked when we sold everything that we pretty much owned and bought an RV and downsized and moved to Oklahoma. I realized that all those things, those material things, they don't matter. Um, it's those memories that you make and, and what you do with your time here on earth that matter because we can't take any of that stuff with us to the grave. Now, granted, I do like to look good out there. I mm-hmm. do like to have my nails done every once you in a while. You have amazing hair. You know? I mean, it's, well, it's in every video and picture. I'm like, dang, <laughs> it looks better than mine on TV. And she's in You're the middle so of a sweet. river. <laughs> You're so sweet. Well, you know, you know, I still like to try, but also I want to show women that you can be girly and be rugged at the same time. Yeah. And I almost, I honestly think that it's cool when, you know, these men, they judge you before they even know you saying, oh, she probably can't fish. Oh, she's got her nails done. She's probably never wet a line or baited a hook, you know, and then you step out there and you show them what's up. Mm-hmm. And I think that itself is empowering. And then men see that and they want to empower their women. And it's a chain reaction. And I get so many men, um, husbands that come fishing with me that bring their wives and they're just like, please, please get her hooked on this yeah. sport for me. You know, like, yeah. please get her hooked on fishing because they want to have something that they do together. And, you know, it doesn't always work out for some of those women. Some of the women don't really care for the sport. But what I do find is that just being out there, even if they don't really care about the fishing aspect of it, being outside and just being confident to be around bugs or critters, snakes, lizards, whatever, it's empowering and and scary things help you grow. And I, I love I love that. That's so true. I love that. Yeah. I'm, I'm all about like, I want to try, but not too much. 
Like yeah. there's only so much time that we get and I got to be on TV for my job. So I got to do some of the, you know, the fake lashes and the right. fake hair and the whatever, <laughs> but I just don't want to spend that much time on that. There's books that right. I've never read. There's places I've never been. There's friends I want to <laughs> hang out with. So I'm like, I got to do just enough so I don't get kicked off a of TV, but not so much that I feel like I wasted my life, you know, in a, in a tanning salon or something. So I'm like, right. <laughs> it's just, it's a balance. It's a balance. We talked it about the balance commissioner. Yes. You understand. Yeah. Um, I want to I want to leave with the message that you both have from your years working in male dominated fields of being confident enough in, to step into new spaces, whether that's a river or a boardroom or, or the outdoors. And what message you would have to someone? Maybe they're just starting out in a field and looking around and not seeing a lot of folks like themselves, or maybe they've never done that because they've been too afraid. What would you say to someone like that, Commissioner? Yeah, you know, um, I like how Mark, the, the whole fear thing is real. Um, but how you use that and, and transform that in your life, I think, is most important. Um, I, I'm, I'm a mission-driven person. Even as a, a former athlete, you know, I was a mission-driven athlete. You know, I had goals each year, you know, to make accomplishments on the court with my team. Um, and I didn't go back and look at stats every day, but I definitely knew that I wanted to get better in advance. So I would say, you know, know what your mission is, whatever you decide to do, you know, what does your end goal look like? Where do you want to be and where do you want to make the most impact? And just know along the way that there will be challenges, but see that as a positive in the challenges. I'm pretty clear that God has not put me in any position so that I would fail completely at all. Um, but he's put me in positions for me to learn and to grow and to use my platform um, to glorify the gifts and talents that he's given me. And so see what you do as a blessing to others and how you pour in along the way and, and not take, right? We're constantly trying to see what we can get. But when you pour in, you get so much more in your jobs and on the earth and where you are um, and, and who benefits from that the most. And so I just hope, just know what your mission is and the end goal and use it to benefit and bless the people along the way. It feels like the universe is sending me a message because that's like the fourth time in one week that the first advice someone has said is to have goals, just to write yeah. them down and to really think about them because moving sort of aimlessly through, even if you have ambition, is just so much more difficult than at least manifesting somehow by putting it down yeah. and doesn't have to be a direct line to that. But every day you could get a little closer to the things that you want if you know what you want. Um, and it and might I, and change, you put Sarah. it out there. I mean, it, it, yeah. Just, you know, be okay with the flexibility that it might shift a little bit, but it still gets. I mean, if you're passionate about being outdoors and you are indoors, look at Morgan. I mean, I just love her story on how she is doing her best work in the place that she wants to be and still making incredible impact. Like, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Morgan, what would you tell someone who's, who's trying to figure it all out? You know, I would tell them to never give up, never stop asking questions, never stop learning. I mean, you're always going to need to learn and grow, um, to not be afraid to make mistakes and look silly or look dumb. You know, everybody starts somewhere. Um, and, and, you know, say you have never fished your whole life and you want to pick it up today. I mean, you, you've, you've got to start somewhere. So, um, don't be afraid to fail. Just get right back up. Keep trying reach out to your mentors and your peers, seek help and advice. And, and like I said, don't be unapologetically you because that's what you're meant to be 
mm. on this earth for. So just to be you. So don't be someone that you're not. Be you and and be confident. I mean, confidence is key. And um, yeah, I think if they stick with those things, they'll succeed with whatever they do. I love that. It was so great to talk to you both, my, so my volleyball superstars who are leading yes. the way in so many different ways. Um, I'm, I'm air high-fiving you guys. Air, all right. There. Yep, there we go. One, two, three. There we Boom. go. What, yes. a, what a successful three-woman weave. Girl um, power. Thank you, ladies, so much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Y'all have a blessed day. That's what she said. You can always tweet me, at Sarah Spain, if you've got guest suggestions, questions, or more. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 